Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 680 with Gina Osborne. If your life or career has thrown you for a loop, there's some chaos, there's some crisis, there's some change. Gina has got the goods to share. She's drawn from her experience in the FBI. She's learned a thing or two. She passes along. So you'll learn one, how to find your footing as a new leader. Two, how to stay cool and calm in the face of a crisis. And three, how to convince others to embrace change. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP680. Now here's Gina's story. Having spent over 28 years in law enforcement chasing Cold War spies in the army and terrorists and hackers as an FBI agent, Gina L. Osborne knows about dealing with chaos, crisis, and change. Through it all, she learned that crises can be managed, chaos can be controlled, and change is inevitable. Gina is a leadership consultant and international speaker. She hosts the Lead Like a Lady podcast, which features inspiring women who have made it to the top in male-dominated industries. Big thanks to Gina for sharing her wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Gina. Gina, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. My pleasure. Well, I think we need to start with an exciting FBI story, Gina. Can you give us a a riveting tale that uh, tees us up for talking about calm and crises and, and, and managing our emotions? I've dealt with cyber crises. I led the team that investigated the Sony Pictures Entertainment hack. Uh, I dealt with terrorism in Southeast Asia. So, uh, gosh, a specific story. There's so many. Well, I'm intrigued by the Sony one. If you're open to suggestion, let's hear it. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So the Monday before Thanksgiving in 2014, we got a call from Sony Pictures Entertainment who um, had a very menacing screenshot on all of the computers uh, for Sony Pictures Entertainment. And it uh, said that the Guardians of Peace had taken over their systems and uh, some menacing language about we told you, uh, blah, blah, blah. And essentially, What the whole thing was about was that North Korea was very unhappy with the way their supreme leader was being depicted in a Seth Rogen, James Franco movie. Uh, Yes. And uh, they had sent their displeasure to uh, Sony as well as I think the uh, State Department. And um, yeah. And so one day, uh, the Monday before Thanksgiving, they pretty much shut everything down. And then over the course of a couple of weeks, they were 
putting it out on Pastebin, uh, all the information, emails between the executives, embarrassing emails, uh, content, scripts, things like that. So yeah, it was pretty devastating. Yeah. And how did you resolve it? So I had a crack team of cyber people that I'm very, very proud of. And they went to work and within a very short amount of time, they identified North Korea as the culprit. And the investigation continued and it turned out that North Korea was also behind the WannaCry ransomware that uh, was out that caused, I think, a billion dollars worth of loss, as well as a hack into the Bank of Bangladesh, where they stole, I think, about $81 million. So my folks wound up indicting uh, uh, some folks over in North Korea. And uh, it was just a very, very interesting insight into how they're basically funding their nuclear weapons program. That's wild. That's wild. And so I understand that when you when you started and you took over the FBI cyber and computer forensics program, you didn't have much technical knowledge. Uh, can you tell us how that came to be and how you managed? Yes, I like to say that I was a very good leader, but uh, <laughs> uh, but when you don't have technical uh, credibility with your team, it's uh, it's kind of hard to lead. So I was on the FBI's inspection staff. In order for us to get promoted into the executive ranks, we have to do about 18 months on the mothership. So I went back to Washington, D.C. I was on the inspection staff, and I was a team leader, and none of the other team leaders volunteered to inspect cyber programs because cyber back then, this was like in 2005, it was relatively new and not a lot of people had the technical expertise to really inspect a cyber program within a field office. And so I didn't learn in the army not to volunteer for things, which is something I should have learned. But I'm glad that I didn't learn it because I volunteered to go and look at the Chicago's office and they had a very large cyber program. And then I just sort of became the cyber programmatic expert within the inspection staff. And then right when I was going back to Los Angeles, they had created the first cyber assistant special agent in charge position. So I put my hat in the ring and I wound up getting that. And yeah, I definitely had to change my leadership style because I had always been a lead from the front leader. But when you're, you can't lead from the front when you, you don't have technical knowledge when you're a cyber person. So I became a servant leader and I got my cyber geniuses, everything they needed to do their jobs. And uh, they were wildly successful. Oh, that's great. Well, so then I'm curious in terms of just your own, the chatter in your own head and your mindset, when you find yourself in, in that place, are you like, oh, shoot, I'm going to screw up, going to fail, I'm, I'm not equipped for this? Like, how does your brain go and how do you manage uh, those sorts of thoughts? Well, when I went into the military, I think fewer than 10% of the soldiers were women. When I went into the FBI in 1990, and that was in 1987, when I went into the FBI in 1996, there were only 14% of all of the agents were women. So I think I kind of, in the beginning, I had the negative thoughts in my head. I had gone from a cocktail waitress to a counterintelligence agent in the army pretty much overnight, like within the six month period. So I had experienced those things back in the day. But I think at that point, I, after I'd been in for about 15 years in law enforcement, I think really 
all of the leadership traits that I had taken on up until that point had been very masculine leadership traits that didn't really suit me because I was a very good communicator, a good problem solver. I was very empathetic. I uh, liked to build teams and create relationships and things like that. So when I could no longer lead like a man in a male-dominated environment because my cyber folks kind of forced me into a whole nother leadership style, I really began to shine as a leader because I was leading authentically, because I was using the skills that I was authentically good at, (laughs) as opposed to taking on leadership traits from the men around me. And I was able to build an empire with my team in cyber and computer forensics because everybody had ownership in the mission. I mean, my job was to keep the racehorses on the reservation. And like I said, get them everything they needed to do their job. So I became more and more confident in that position because I was leading from the right place. Mm-hmm. And so could you give us some examples of, of what are some things that maybe racehorses don't get or they find frustrating or where you uh, specifically add value and, and make their lives great? Well, I would say the communication was a big thing because although I didn't speak their language, I learned enough about their language to be able to dumb it down to share it with my bosses so I can get them funding and uh, approvals for operations that they wanted to do. So that was one thing. And we would go to these presentations and whenever they were, you know, started to speak over everybody's head, I was the one where I was kind of saying, hey, you know, we need to dumb this down just a little bit so the common person can understand what's going on. I had been at headquarters, so I knew where all the money trees at headquarters were. So, you know, the way to a cyber person's heart is uh, through their equipment. And so they gave me a list of a huge list of equipment that I wanted, and I was able to procure that for them. And uh, really building relationships, I had been in the Los Angeles division for pretty much all of my career, other than my time at headquarters. And I had really good relationships with chiefs of police because I had worked with them when I was a working agent. So when my folks needed additional resources because they wanted to build task forces, I could go out to the chiefs and say, hey, can you give us a detective or two so we can have them participate in this you know, upcoming threat and teach them how to do these cyber investigations? And that worked really well. And we were able to build a $6 million or a $7 million state-of-the-art computer forensics lab as a result of relationships that I had and my team had. And so really, I built trust with them by finding how I could contribute. And although it wasn't technically, I had other things that they really needed. And so that's how we wound up being a really good team. Well, so your, your book, Becoming Unstoppable, I'd love to, to hear more about that if we're not already unstoppable. <laughs> How do we become unstoppable? (laughs) Well, so we're working, we're still working on the book. However, I am an executive coach and I coach people on how to lead through chaos, crisis and change. Because so many times, you know, when we're looking at, say, chaos, for example, and, and really, what is that? That's the nagging little things that are coming up all the time and and we just are on overload because we're looking at so many emails and we're getting so many phone calls and COVID and you've got family problems, you've got all of these things. And so when I talk to people about chaos, the first thing I say is, what are you tolerating? 
because the more you tolerate, the more chaos you're going to have in your life. So when I'm working with my clients, I have them make a list of all of the little nagging things. You know, these aren't the monumental relationship problems because we can work on those a little bit later. But if you just identify the little, the energy zappers, you know, the annoying things, the things that are keeping you from getting to where you want to be. And then just like, for example, you have boxes in the garage and uh, they, you know, you know, they need to be unpacked. So every time you pull into the garage, you're thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to unpack those boxes or the leaky faucet in the kitchen. That's another thing that every time you walk into the kitchen, you're confronted with this leaky faucet. Well, take a couple hours on a Saturday, have the kids unpack the boxes, call a plumber to fix the kitchen. And then every time you go into the garage in the kitchen, you're going to feel that sense of relief, right? So if you do that and you start really eliminating these tolerations, you'd be so surprised at how much space that you have to deal with your priorities and getting down the road to where you want to be. Well, that's really interesting. So things like unpacked boxes and dripping faucets can indeed impede our ability to move forward on what matters. So you're saying the best move isn't just try to ignore them and, and, and hunker down on your priorities, but rather first address them. Yes. And when you address enough of them and you find that you've got this extra space, you're going to be able to see chaos coming from around the corner. And then you're going to be able to prevent it before it gets into your life. I can't stand it when I'm not getting the ball down the field. I mean, that's my place where it just drives me nuts when when things come up and I have to deal with other things. And then all of a sudden I'm dealing with so many things that I'm not even thinking about getting the ball down the field. But that if we actively just eliminate the things that we're tolerating. And these could also be relationships that we have. They can be arguments that we have with our friends or our family members or our significant others that are never going to be one. So why are we even bringing up someone leaving milk glasses around or someone not picking up their dirty laundry or something like that? It's like, why are we having these arguments that we know that are never going to be resolved? So I think there's so much room for us to get rid of that clutter. And once we get rid of that clutter, that's when we get closer to becoming unstoppable because it's not the little things that are going to trip us up. You know, we're going to be prepared for when the big things come down the pike that we're going to get over or around or under that wall. But no matter what, we're going to get through that wall. And so you say it's not going to be resolved. So we're, we're, let's just not have this argument. What does that look like in practice? It's about setting boundaries. And that's that's another thing that we need to, to do in our relationships. Because when you set boundaries, that means we're going to create a safe place around us it, to work and live. And also it teaches people how to treat us. So if we know that every time we decide to go down this road, that's the trigger for an argument, let's not go down that road. Let's just agree that this is never going to be resolved. Otherwise, we're just going to be wasting our time. So really, it's about time management and really recognizing what's going to get fixed. And, and what if it doesn't get fixed? Okay, so you leave the milk glasses out. All right, well, so maybe I'm doing something that's bothering you and then you can clean up after me and other places. But I, I think if we just let these unresolved issues just continue to grow, it's just going to, like, again, zap our energy and and not allow us to to get the ball down the field. 
So I guess with the milk glass example, you're freeing yourself from the burden of having that argument repeatedly. Right. And so, so that mental energy is, is liberated there. Right. Now, yet the milk glasses remain there. And so you've got some mental energy drained from, from seeing them repeatedly. So is that, is there also sort of an internal mindset shift that, that occurs there? Or it seems like in a way you, you've eliminated one problem, but you still got another. Right. So you have to make a decision. Either you're going to pick up the milk glasses and put them in the kitchen, or you're going to argue with it. And you have to evaluate, is this relationship worth me having to pick these milk glasses up and put them in the kitchen because this person refuses to do it? I mean, maybe it's just a symptom of of a bigger issue. And as we clear out the things that we're tolerating, we need to evaluate relationships. Are they working or are they not? working? Does it work for you when you see your neighbor and you're getting ready to go to work and you're going to be late because you're always kind of running late. And then you've got a neighbor who wants to talk to you for 20 minutes before they let you out of, you know, out of your, your driveway. So we just have to set the boundaries so we can choose, okay, is this going to be part of my priorities? Is this relationship going to be part of my priorities? Because if the relationship isn't going to be part of the priorities, then you don't have time to spend that 20 minutes with the neighbor, you're going to have to create some sort of boundary to let them know that this isn't working for you. Certainly. And so then that's interesting because you may decide I'm okay having no relationship with my neighbor ever. Exactly. And if it goes to, to the darkest place in, in terms of like, I'm willing to take that risk when I say, Bob, I'm done with the morning conversations. So you, you start with that internal clarity in terms of what's at stake? What's the risk? Am I, can I live with that? And then that gives you some, some power. But yes, it sounds like you're, that's where we're going to go next is, is how you have those conversations about setting boundaries effectively. Yes. Well, everything can't be a priority. So if you want to have time with your family, you want to get a promotion, you want to spend time with your elderly parents and take care of an elderly parent, where does the neighbor come in on the priority list? And everything can't be a priority. So if the neighbor's got to go, (laughs) then you can't, like I said, you can't do everything right. And that again, brings chaos into our lives when we don't have priorities set and everything is a priority. And so all we're doing is juggling all day and that doesn't make for a good quality of life. Okay, great. So we've set up some things here such that your overall mental peace and space is in a better place for when crisis does happen. So when crisis happens, maybe first, can you define that for us, crisis? How do you recommend we navigate through it? So before we go there, just remember that if we don't deal with chaos, it could very well turn into a crisis. So we definitely want to know that the importance of Getting rid of the chaos before it becomes a crisis, that's going to help you in the long run. But what is a crisis? So a crisis can be anything from a death of a family member, illness. It could be divorce. It could be any major change, anything that happens at work. I mean, if we're watching the news, there's so many cyber attacks that are happening. I mean, that would be considered a crisis as well. And I've had to deal with a lot of these crises between my time in the military as well as my time in the FBI. And so whenever something major would happen, the first thing I would do is set priorities. I mean, first, I want to hear about everything, of course, you know, what's happening, everything that everybody has, give it to me as the leader. But then I need to set 
priorities. And those priorities can change, but at least there's got to be some sort of roadmap out there that this is what we're going to follow until there's a change. Now, as new information comes in, you need to be flexible and you need to be able to change with that. It's also important to have a great team with you. Uh, Whenever I would have a crisis, the last person that I would want on my team is somebody who is going to be sapping us of our energy, somebody who would be complaining, somebody who wouldn't be, you know, working as hard as everybody else. So you definitely want to choose a good team around you to deal with the crisis and eliminate anything that's getting in your way of going down the, the road to getting your priorities checked. And then it's just working every day and keeping your eye on the ball and getting through it. I think a lot of time people maybe give up before the crisis is dealt with, but sometimes we don't have that luxury. But a lot of times people will grieve for a very, very long time because they choose not to deal with the crisis. So I think when there is a crisis, or I know when there is a crisis, setting priorities, having a good team, having a roadmap to get to the end of dealing with the crisis and also knowing what success looks like so that there can be an end to what this crisis is. All right. Well, and so then when it comes to the setting of priorities, how do you recommend we uh, arrive at them? Like, is there some key questions or a thought process that you go through? Well, I mean, my crises would be different than other people's crises. But if you look at what the crisis is, and really identify, okay, again, what does success look like? What, where are we going with this? Are we going to be mired in the crisis until it chews us up and spits it out? Or, you know, how do we get out of it or evolve out of what's happening now? So really that's where the priorities come in and and setting those priorities of, okay, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and this is what we're going to do until this time it's very important to know where you're going as opposed to just being sucked into an undertow of a crisis. Well, so I guess that's what's tricky about a crisis is that there could very well be dozens of, of directions that um, you, you feel kind of urgent all at once. So maybe could you walk us through an example of, hey, crisis appeared and, and here's how you arrived at the priorities and, and what they were. Sure. So with Sony Pictures Entertainment, looking at, okay, we have this crisis because we've got a company that's on American soil that has been attacked by a adversary, a nation state. All right, that that is a problem. Okay, what do we know? So send people out, get the team together, identify who's going to be on this team, who has the skills to be able to identify who did it because that's what the FBI does is they conduct the investigation. Also, we had to be mindful as to what was going on with the victim company. And because I think 47,000, someone will have to check my math, employees and former employees, all their information, their social security numbers, privately owned, everything was out there in the wind. So now you have a workforce that has been victimized. So we had to address that by giving presentations about identity theft and also having great, uh, there was a huge media push, you know, wanting to know what was going on, what happened to Sony, you know, all of this information was coming out about every three days it was posted to um, Pastebin by the adversary. So that was going on. So really understanding what success looked like as far as helping the victim get through it. And then um, working every day to conduct the investigation so that we can identify who did it and bring those people to justice. And when you're in the midst of things and you're, if you find yourself freaking out, 
how do you return to, to calm and collected and wise? Well, as a leader, you can't really freak out because uh, the biggest way to lose trust with your team is through unpredictable behavior. <laughs> so, so if you are going to be the, leading a crisis, it is very important for you to maintain uh, your people's trust and confidence by keeping a cool and level head and really leading. But there are times in the middle of a crisis that people are going to get tired. And that's why it's so important to have a good team around you. I mean, if you're going through a divorce, if if you're dealing with an illness, if, you know, if different things can happen within within a family, you know, making sure you have have that team. A lot of people are fearful or they they are embarrassed or there's shame in reaching out to other people to ask for help. But I don't know about you, Pete, but whenever somebody going through a problem and they ask me for my help, I am honored to help them out with the problem. And I think a lot of people feel that way. So people shouldn't be afraid to ask for help because if you're going through something very, very difficult, you don't have to do it alone. Get a team around you that's going to help you through that crisis. And that's very, very important. So whenever I would get tired, I mean, I had other leaders that I was working, that I worked with and they were doing a great job. So really that's why you have a great team around you because sometimes you can't throw the punches every day. Sometimes you got to sit down and, and rest for a minute. And, uh, and that's why you have a good team around you. All right. So we talked about the, the chaos. We talked about the crisis. And now how about change? Change is inevitable. <laughs> change is going to happen. And, and I've worked with some clients who have a very, very strong culture and tradition. And their workforce is resistant to change. In fact, I dealt with it myself when I was with the FBI, especially after 9-11. How do you go from being a criminal investigative organization to a national security intelligence gathering organization, right? We went from investigators to intelligence collectors almost over night. And so how do you take a workforce that we're working gangs and and drugs and uh, organized crime and bank robberies and tell them that they're going to work terrorism now. So I definitely got an education because I was a counterterrorism program coordinator in Los Angeles after 9-11. And we had to create 15 terrorism squads within like an 18 month period. And so, I mean, really trying to enlist people and giving them ownership and being part of the change, that's going to break down the resistance as opposed to saying, this is how we're going to do it and then do it. I don't, I don't think uh, it has to come from the top down. I think it has to be very collaborative when you're trying to turn the ship, do a U-turn on a great big uh, ship and uh, it doesn't come overnight, but people are going to be resistant to change. And again, it comes with communication. How can I communicate this change? How can I get people involved? How can we give them ownership in having this change take place. And I think the more people who are involved, it's going to be an easier change for people. But but yeah, you know, when you're, you're steeped in culture and tradition, it's very difficult to change, but it can happen. And so when you're having some of those communications and one-on-one or in small groups and, and trying to bring about some additional ownership, do you have any favorite approaches or or phrases? What do those conversations look, sound, feel like? Oh boy, my favorite phrase, my military phrases. This isn't a volunteer army sometimes. I mean, it just depends on what situation you're in. But I think it's really important as a leader to understand 
why there's resistance because sometimes resistance, I mean, most of the time resistance is going to be fear-based. So they don't understand it. Maybe they don't think it needs to happen. Maybe they're afraid that with the change comes other responsibilities that the employee may not feel that they're going to be able to do. So I think really understanding where the resistance is coming from and addressing those issues. Okay, so perhaps it's a training issue. So bring training in and talk about it. Talk about what the change is going to look like and talk about the reason for the change. If that's communicated, I think people, okay, I understand that. So maybe I'll get on board. But uh, it is a process if you're in a resistant workforce to make change. But make change can happen, but you have to be consistent with it. All right. Lovely. Well, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. If anybody is uh, looking to eliminate chaos from their life uh, for your audience, Pete, I have a free ebook called Seven Key Ways to Eliminate Chaos from Your Life and from Your Business. And if they go to GinaLOsborne.com, they can download that ebook for free. All right. Well, now could you share with us a, a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Okay, I'm going to modify it a little bit. She who attempts the absurd can achieve the impossible. And that's a modified quote from Albert Einstein. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job. I'm learning patience. (laughs) I'm still a work in progress, but I think I'm a big believer in uh, embracing your weaknesses because your imperfections are what make you extraordinary. So yes, these days I'm kind of working on patience a little bit. Mm -hmm. And a favorite habit? I like to play. I definitely like to play. I like to write. I like to fly kites. Any playful things, uh, I, I, I just really enjoy doing. Letting the little Gina inside me go out and have fun. That's always good. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you again and again? You know, it's funny. Yes. My dream when I went into the military was to work for the CIA. And I didn't get into the CIA. And it was devastating to me. But I had to figure something else out. So I I like to say that even if your ship comes in, if your port's not built, your ship's not going to come in to where you need to be. So you definitely need to work on your port to make sure that you're prepared for when your ship comes in. So uh, yeah, I'm a big believer in that. Okay. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I would say you can listen to uh, me on my podcast. It's called Lead Like a Lady, and it features remarkable women who have made it to the top in male-dominated fields. And I also have another podcast called Behind the Crime Scene, which is a true crime podcast. You can find those on your favorite podcast provider. And uh, I'm also an executive coach. And for more information about that, you can go to GinaLOsborne.com. Okay. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I would say lead authentically, be who you are, If embrace whatever things that you're really good at and don't take on the leadership characteristics of other people just because you want to lead like they do. It's so important to really embrace who you are and, and to lead authentically because you really can't fake it to make it when you're in a leadership position because people will uh, notice that right off the bat. You're not going to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. But when you lead authentically and you really rely on the things that you're really good at, no matter what it is, do an assessment and find out what your strengths are. If you rely on those things and make it your contribution using your leadership skills and lead like an authentic leader, I think you're going to be much better down the road. All right. Well, Gina, thanks for this. And I wish you lots of luck in the the crises to come. Thank you very much, Pete. 
I liked what Gina had to say. It's funny. The thing that stuck with me the most is Gina saying the way to the heart of her cybercrime employees was more cool hardware, which sort of feels almost like, I don't know, like a stereotype if you were watching a, a show about people hunting down hackers and their teams. That's what we might just imagine they want. But I think the cool lesson in there is, boy, whenever you have the opportunity to really listen, think, put yourself in the shoes of your team or those you're working with and say, what do they really want or what do they really hate? And how can you give that to them or take it away? The things that are inconveniencing them that can make you a hero in a hurry. So effectively, what is the supercomputer for your group, metaphorically speaking, since they might be into supercomputers, but they're probably into something else. So good stuff from Gina. If you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, they're at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP680. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.